Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Middle Earth Mixer. I'm your host, Evan Cooney, and today we are going to be talking about episode three of The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power. Now, the way I'm going to approach this here is I'm going to take it by plot lines. So we have the Galadriel plot line, we have the Irondir plot line, and we have the Harfoots plot line. So that's how I'm going to take it kind of one by one. I'm not going to go um, chronologically in the episode. I'd rather just kind of stick to one and then move on to the next one. So yeah, without further ado, let's uh, let's jump right into it. Okay, so what do we got? We got Galadriel. She's waking up on a Numenorean ship, right? And and they get called up to the deck. And we are introduced to the captain, who, of course, we find out is Elendil. And she's like, where are we going? And he says, home. Uh, I mean, this scene looks great. The shots are fantastic. Once again, I've said this plenty of times before. You can really see the money on the screen. We don't have any lore context for Galadriel being picked up by a Numenorean ship, but hey, we're here for the ride, so let's see where it goes. After after he says the we're going home line, you kind of get the, the opening shot of our first look at the island of Numenor, and it looks really cool. It looks really Mediterranean. Uh, Bear McCreary, the guy who did the music for this, he I think he kind of intentionally chose like uh, more of like a Mediterranean type of theme for Numenor. I, I think he said something along the lines of he wanted to pick something that feels like it's it's dead, it's old, it, it no longer exists when you get to the Lord of the Rings trilogy. We get a really cool shot of like a lighthouse, and then something that I actually, I thought was great. We get, so they don't say it, obviously, because they can't, because they don't really have the rights to the Silmarillion, but we, we, we get a hat tip to Olmo. The, the Vala Olmo who uh, controls the seas. There's a, a big statue of him, kind of, that they, they go past by the, the lighthouse. And then we get this series of, it looks cool, but it kind of reminds me of the, the Promethean heads, you know, from the movie Prometheus. So that was kind of, that was an interesting thing. But it, I mean, everything looks great. You, you certainly cannot say that Numenor doesn't look fantastic. And then they, they kind of, pull through this after they go past the Olmo statue which again like I love that as a big Silmarillion nerd you know I'm glad that they're giving us those hat tips even though they can't really name the things that they're referencing Um, I appreciate that as a fan so they kind of get into this port city which we find out is the capital obviously because it's it's where the palace is it's where the queen is but I I don't believe that they've named Armenelos yet you know, if they have, I, I certainly didn't pick up on it. But so they, they arrive in Armenelos and they're, they get off the ship and Galadriel and Halbrand have this discussion about the current situation. She's pointing out that elves are no longer welcome in Numenor, which we have lore context for. At this time, you know, elves certainly would not have been welcome in Numenor. So, you know, no surprises there. I'm I'm glad that they have included that. The attitudes of the peoples of Numenor seem to be correct uh, within the show. And during this little back and forth, you know, there was something I noticed, and obviously this... It gets revealed later in the episode, but they're they're really laying into um, Halbrand being super interested in you know becoming a smith 
in Numenor. They're having this little back and forth, and then Halbrand stops after Elendil tells them, like, oh, you know, you shouldn't walk without a guide. He stops and he he looks over at the blacksmith. And I'm seeing that, and I'm like, okay. <laughs> he has an interest in smithing. And who else has an interest in smithing? Sauron, right? We know that Sauron was under the tutelage, and this is from, you know, this is from stuff that they don't have the rights to, so... We're not, I'm not sure how much we'll see this incorporated, but Sauron was under the tutelage of Aule, the, the smith, the, the Vala Aule, who is responsible for the creation of the dwarves. That's kind of why the dwarves are so interested in smithing. Uh, Sauron served him prior to serving Melkor. So Sauron has an interest in smithing, and also, of course, we know that because he forges the rings of power. So I kind of noticed that, and I'm like, all right, they're 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 really kind of leaning into this. Maybe Halbrand is into the same things that Sauron is interested in. So it's something to keep into consideration. They finally get taken up to the palace, and something, one thing that uh, Nerd of the Rings actually pointed out on Twitter, I didn't even, didn't even notice this when I was watching it, because everything's just... Everything is just so fantastic, like all of these kind of aerial shots of the city. I just kind of miss this. But if you look around the tree of Nimloth, which is this introduction shot that we have of the palace, but we get the courtyard where the tree of Nimloth is. Now remember, the tree of Nimloth that's in the Akalabath, it is the tree that is tied directly with the line of kings. And... I can get further into what that all means in a second, but something that I should see at this time is some disrespect for the tree of Nimloth, right? Because we know that Nimloth connects Numenor culturally to the elves of Amman, uh, particularly Tol Arisea, but it is their connection with the Valar and Elvish culture. So something that they did was if you look around, if you kind of freeze the, the shot of the that introductory shot of the palace where you see Nimloth everything kind of looks in disrepair you know the pillars are kind of they look like maybe parts of them have fallen off and when you put that in the context of everything else you're seeing in those opening shots because everything looks so grand and well taken care of I appreciate that small little detail it's like everything is being taken care of except for the courtyard where the tree sits because at this point the Numenorians don't care really about you know upkeep of the tree so I thought that that was a really cool little bit of detail that they did there and, and then we move on and we have Galadriel and Halbrand standing before Tar Muriel the queen of Numenor in this show a little lore context we see Tar Muriel in this show and she appears to be someone who has at least some level of established rule. The show doesn't, you know, go into how long she has been ruling, uh, but from the lore, we don't really have, this is kind of a liberty that the show is taking because it says that upon her father's death in the books, right, uh, Farazan seizes the throne and forces her to marry him. Now, sorry, spoiler alert, folks, but um, that 
guy with the long hair and the beard, uh, that Farazan fellow that is being referred to as the Chancellor, I believe. Um, yeah, he seizes the throne. He forces her to marry him. I'm not sure if they're going to do that for the show. Uh, he's also Muriel's cousin, so it'll be interesting to kind of see how this plays out. Um, I haven't heard Farazan in the show be referred to as her cousin yet, so that's going to be something that bothers me, you know, if they don't if they don't lay that out. They need to establish that he's a member of the royal family in order for his usurpation to make sense. But yeah, he basically, he does that immediately after her father's death. Now, we learn that her father is still alive in the show, uh, so uh, it'll be interesting to see how it unfolds. Um, Having Tar Muriel as somebody who's been sitting on the throne for a bit doesn't really bother me, just as long as... You establish that he is a member of the royal family and he takes the throne eventually. But anyway, so Galadriel and Halbran are brought before Mariel and they have kind of this... Galadriel has this exchange with Mariel and it's super annoying because Galadriel is smart, right? Oh, I, we get that we do have lore context for her being a little bit entitled and prideful, of course, uh, but it, it just kind of seems like it's a stupid thing for her to be making all of these demands before the queen. You know, she's demanding a boat to go to Middle Earth. She is, she basically feels like she's entitled to have these people kind of work around her needs in that moment. And it's, it's all delivered in a very forced way. So that kind of annoyed me, but you have Galadriel and, and Muriel kind of having this argument and Halbrand steps in. He tries to have cooler heads prevail in this moment. He says, hey, how about we stay for a couple days and then you can consider our request for a, a boat to Middle-earth. Now, it seems that Halbrand wants to stay because after this kind of gets worked out, Galadriel and Halbrand are talking. He actually, so I'm, I'm skipping the part where Halbrand steals back Galadriel's dagger because he goes to thank Elendil, the ship captain, for saving them. And as he's hugging him, he kind of swipes Galadriel's dagger off of them and then they go to the corner and Halbrand hands her a dagger back and they have this little exchange where he seems to be expressing that he wants to stay in Numenor because it seems to be a land of opportunity. So interesting things kind of happening there. One thing that did really upset me about this scene is that Muriel pulls the Chancellor, Farazan, aside and she looks at Elendil and goes, tell me about this, this captain. Tell me about this young captain that rescued Galadriel and Halbrand here. Now, that jumped out to me because I'm like, well, <laughs> she should know who Elendil is. I haven't heard any references to Elendil's father, Amandil, uh, but Amandil is a distant member of the royal family. If you listen to my Fall of Numenor podcast, I talk about that whole line. Uh, Amandil comes from the line of the first daughter of, I, I believe, the fourth Numenorean king, Aldarion. Um, now, she was she did not inherit the throne because the law women could inherit the throne didn't go into effect until the sixth king of Numenor. So her descendants inherited the western section of Numenor called Anduni, and that would have been, um, you know, Elendil's birthright to rule that area. And they were remained close with the royal family, um, especially since that they're, you know, distant relations to the royal family. So uh, Tarmariel should have a very good idea of who Elendil is. As a matter of fact, Elendil should be a regular member of this court. It shouldn't be kind of a question that she needs to ask, who is this young captain? So, yeah, writers taking a little bit of independence there. 
that was annoying. But, you know, going in, I know that the lore isn't going to be 100% perfect. So I'm not letting it stop me from, at the very least, watching the first season. So then we're we're moved out of the palace and we, we go out to, we get a shot of a ship, right? And there's a bunch of, it, it looks as if there's some kind of training exercise going on for these young sailors. And we are introduced to the character Isildur. Uh, Isildur is Elendil's son. If you have watched the Peter Jackson trilogy, Isildur is the one who didn't throw the ring into, you remember, cast it into the fire. He doesn't do it. Uh, And then he meets his death in a river. Sometime later, Golem finds that uh, ring in the, well, actually, Deagle finds it in the river and then Golem kills him and takes the ring for himself but we are introduced to this the young version of this man on a ship doing some kind of training exercise and we have the reveal i actually i really liked the reveal of his character the name drop because um so he he gets distracted for a second this character he's gazing out uh into the ocean and some some whisper whispers his name like a seal and then all of a sudden, this other guy on the boat, because he's distracted, screams his name. He yells out, Isildur. And it sounds so much like the way Elrond's character yells his name out in the Peter Jackson movies. Which was a nice little, you know, hat tip that I really appreciated. Uh, it was a great way to introduce his character. So anyway, they, they pull up on the beach and... They get done their little training exercise, and then they're all in kind of like in a line at attention. And their captain, I guess, uh, says, the sea is always right, or something like that. And then they all in unison go, the sea is always right. And at first when I heard that, I was like, what in the world? You know, I, I, <laughs> it's like, what? what is it? That sounds so weird. Um, but then after giving it further thought, uh, I actually really appreciated it because... I believe that what they're actually referring to when they say, and maybe this is just me giving them the benefit of the doubt, but I I don't think, I really do think this is why they put it in there. The C is always right, because they're actually making a reference to Olmo, uh, you know, the Lord of the Seas. Remember the, the statue that I referenced earlier that they see as they're going into Numenor. That's who I think that they're referencing when they say that. But they can't actually say it. They have to do the sea is always right kind of this in this cryptic manner because they don't really have the rights to it. So I know where that's coming from and I appreciate that. And I think like any fan really should. Uh, it's so it comes off weird at first, but after you think about it, you're like, oh, okay. All right, that makes sense. And then this this girl kind of, walks up and I I forget her name, but we find out that she's Sildor's sister, which uh, Sildor doesn't have a sister. So they're, you know, writing in a new family member and uh, we'll see kind of where that goes. I don't mind it too much as long as this person doesn't interfere with anything that the family does. I, it's not an unreasonable thing to think that like, Maybe Elendil would have had a daughter that isn't mentioned. I mean, he doesn't, but uh, for this story's sake, I'm fine with it. It doesn't really bother me that much. Um, And then what do we see next? Oh, Halbran is, he, we go back to Halbran, right? And he's kind of walking around the city and he's trying to work as a, he's trying to get work as a blacksmith. And the guy actually tells him that 
I think he's, he says pendant or it's almost like a taxi badge. You know, it's it's like they have unions in Numenor, which great little feature, by the way, if you're trying to introduce a culture that's in decline. They have all these strict uh, <laughs> strict uh, occupational licensing laws. I thought that that was a, a funny little thing to add in there. So, yeah, he, he requires some kind of training badge to, in order to be a blacksmith in Numenor. So he decides, I guess, that he's going to steal one. He sees this group of gentlemen who are, are sitting in the bar, and he decides he's going to steal the guy's pendant. And he buys drinks for them and everything, which I don't know where he got money from. That was kind of annoying. Because I'm like, where did he get this money from? Does he just have it because of who his parentage is? Or was it in his pocket? We don't know. Did he steal it off somebody? They don't tell us. But he's got this money somehow. He buys everybody's drinks. Uh, and then he steals the smith pendant off of the guy's robe. Guy notices, and then he gets jumped in an alley. And what I did like, actually, is they're kind of, they're calling him a low man the whole time. Speaking down to him, because he is one of the middlemen of Middle-earth. Now, they're not calling him middlemen, he's referring to him as a low man. But we get that, uh, we get a good look at how the, even the common folk view themselves compared to other men. We know that the the Numenorians during this time period were very haughty and proud of themselves. So I liked that little detail that they were constantly kind of trying to deride Halbrand's character and insult him for not being Numenorian because they see themselves as superior. And they also uh, kind of making jokes about him like maybe being into Galadriel and saying like uh, maybe she'd be more interested in a man of better stock. You know, comments like that I thought was interesting because that's what we want to get into. You know, we want to get into what the, the rotten attitudes of the Numenorians are at this time. Oh, one thing I forgot to mention. So yeah, we know, I, I already talked about how Halbrand was interested in being a blacksmith and that made me think, hey, he has the same interest as Sauron. Kind of adding on to that, when he is talking to the blacksmith about wanting to get a job, he says something along the lines of, I'm better than anybody you know, in this country at this at this art. Uh, and I thought that was funny because that's intentionally written dialogue there. And if that has any truth to it, then that would lead me to believe like, okay, if you're actually better than the Numenorians at crafting, then are you Sauron? <laughs> because that's a particular skill of Sauron. That's something that we know. So that's another thing to take note of. Anyway, uh, the guys get angry that he steals their their pendant and then they go to fight him. He ends up beating them up somehow, which is weird. You know, it almost seemed like he was like Captain America or something. So I would like to know how Halbrand knows how to fight that well. Is he more than just a man? That kind of thing. Anyway, the guards come up and arrest him because one of the guys he's fighting gets away, grabs the guards. They throw him in prison for stirring up a ruckus. Then we go back to Galadriel, and I might have even, I don't even think I'm doing this chronologically right. But anyway, back to Galadriel's side of the story. Muriel charges Elendil. She brings Elendil into the court, and she charges him with taking care of Galadriel, watching over Galadriel. And something I found interesting was they have this little exchange about Elendil's name. You know, she says something along the lines of, you know, what what does your name mean, Elendil? And he says, uh, uh, lover of stars. And she says, no, yeah, but it, it also means something else. And then he reveals that in uh, Quenya, it, it means uh, elf friend. So th that's an interesting dynamic that they kind of point out. I really appreciated that because we are getting, even a little bit in that discussion, we're getting this, we're seeing the dynamic of the clash of culture that is happening in Numenor at this point. 
between whether or not you would even want people to know that that's what your name means in that tongue. And it seems like Elendio almost doesn't want to admit that that's what it means at first. So I like that. That was a good little bit of context there. Also, I don't think I laid out properly uh, before, but we're also getting this impression that Muriel uh, is of like mind with um, these factions in Numenor that don't want to have anything to do with elves. The the show gives us that impression at first, which I find interesting considering what happens you know towards the end of the episode. We get this impression of Muriel that she is not wanting to have anything to do with elves like everybody else. She agrees with the ban of elves on Numenor. Uh, however, she charges Elendil to watch Galadriel. And Elendil finds Galadriel trying to escape on a boat. And then he speaks Elvish to her and he says something like, uh, not everybody here hates you because she was complaining about everybody there hates her and she just wanted to escape and get back to Middle Earth. And then he tells her about a hall of lore back in his side of the country in Anduni, which makes sense because Anduni would be the location where these, these factions and documents that are friendly to the elves would be. So they decide to go there together. Now, I don't know if he tells her where it is and he just follows her there, but he's, you know, in charge of keeping watch over her. So it makes sense that he has to go with her to this this place that he tells her about. And they end up in this hall of lore and Galadriel is trying to find information about the mark that was on her brother, about the mark that was on the anvil that they find in that first episode. This weird thing that kind of reminds you of the Eye of Sauron. And they give it to, you know, a guy who kind of reminds me of like a maester from Game of Thrones, but they give it to like some caretaker of the Hall of Lore. And he goes off and then Galadriel and Elendil have this moment kind of where they're alone and there is a tapestry on the wall. And it is a tapestry of Elrond and Elros. Oh, uh, Elendil tells her that Elros actually built that hall of lore. And Galadriel says, oh, that's great. You know, I, I was really close with his brother, Elrond. So for those of you who don't know, Elrond and Elros were twins. They had uh, both uh, elvish and human DNA, and they got to choose whether they wanted to be an elf or a man. Now, Elrond chose the fate of the Eldar to be bound to the earth as an elf. And Elros, his twin brother, chose to be a man. Now, he, both of them were also sons of each of the great houses of men during the First Age. So Elros actually became the leader of the, the men who had helped the elves during the First Age. And they were rewarded with Numenor. And he was the first king of Numenor. And we have this tapestry on the wall of what, it's like a bond between you have Elros on one side with what looks like Numenor, and then you have Elrond on the other, which looks like uh, uh, Linden. And both of them look like they're almost kind of exchanging something or shaking hands in the middle. And then above them, now actually I didn't even notice this until I looked at the picture on Twitter, but above them it looks like that the star of Erendil is above them with uh, the ship Vingalot in the, the middle of that star. Now that is... That's a lot of context. I could break off for like another hour talking about all the background with that. But uh, Erendil was their father. He ends up becoming a st- <laughs> he ends up becoming a star. Just don't think about it too much. It's a lot, but Silmarillion reference right there. And I love that. That was that was great. That's the kind of thing that I wanted to see in the show. I didn't really think that they were going to be giving us all that because it's so much, really. It's it's a lot to explain. But yeah, really appreciated that portion right there. 
And then, now by now, the librarian comes back with this. It's like a report from a prisoner who had seen the mark before, and they talked about kind of where they were imprisoned and said that where they were imprisoned was the source of the mark. So Galadriel essentially figures out that this mark is, it's not actually a symbol, it's a map of uh, Mordor, or what becomes Mordor. In the show, it's the Southlands. So she kind of figures out that Sauron intends for all of the evil things of the world to meet me at Mordor, and this is this is where our new base is going to be. Which, you know, that's interesting. Because at this point, Mordor in the show is is a, a very green, lush farmland that a bunch of people are living on. We know from a Rondir storyline that orcs are digging tunnels under it. But this is this is a interesting little angle for at least the first season of the show is is Sauron's establishment of a realm and a base for himself. So that takes place there. She also finds well, I'll wait until. Yeah, so next scene, uh, Galadriel and Elendil leave there. I was, you know, I will say I was a little disappointed, by the way, in this this Hall of Lore discussion. Maybe they'll reveal it later, but I feel like this would have been a really good time to have a Ring of Barahir moment, you know, to have maybe Elendil go to hand or something, and she sees the Ring of Barahir. Uh, we know from the books that the line of of Elendil has uh, this this ring that used to belong to Galadriel's brother, Finrod, the one that she was talking to in the first episode. Finrod was in possession of this ring, and uh, Elendil's ancestor saves Finrod, and as a token of goodwill and promise to always be a friend to Elendil's house, uh, Finrod gave Elendil's ancestor this ring, and we know you know, from the Lord of the Rings, that Aragorn inherits that ring, and he wears it throughout the series. So it would have been a really cool moment for Galadriel to kind of look down at his hand and see this ring on there. And I was disappointed that they didn't include it. I have to think that, you know, they will eventually at some point, because it's such a great way to tie everything together. But I guess we'll see. Uh, And then next, after that, we get this scene where Elendil is, like, having dinner or something. He's meeting them outside somewhere, his children. Isildur and the sister that were introduced uh, to earlier in the episode. He's meeting them outside and there's this weird little puppet show going on that's got Galadriel as a main character in the puppet show, which I found odd because it seems like the people of Numenor have some... I mean, I guess... I guess it makes sense if if they're because they're in Anduni at this point, right? So they're they're among the population of people who are ha- have positive feelings toward the elves. So um, it just kind of struck me like that that children in this area of Numenor would know who Galadriel is, but I could see it. You know, I, I could see it. Maybe they're being taught about the lore still and uh, by by their parents. So I guess it wasn't that weird, but. My first reaction was like, would they even know who, you know, this one elf is? But I guess they could. So there's a little puppet show and, and Galadriel is one of the main characters. And that's kind of happening in the background of this scene. And then you have Elendil, he's talking to his kids and Isildur tells him that he wants to take a semester off <laughs> of doing training for um, being a member of Numenor's navy. So Elendil is upset to hear this, uh, and then we find out from the sister that the sister, I think she says she's been accepted into something called the Builders Guild, which is funny because it's like just another reference to like 
like trade unions. <laughs> you know that that old saying where it'll be like, "Is two a lot?" Well, it depends. Pennies? No. References to guilds and mercantilism in one episode of a show? Yeah, it is. It's, it's like just there's too much economics happening in this show for some reason. But anyway, so. We have her talking about being accepted to the Builders Guild, and then Elendil gets upset because he wants to push off going into the Navy, and he kind of storms off, and that's the scene. I actually saw a really interesting theory on Twitter, and I'm not sure who coined it, but somebody was speculating that maybe the sister actually ends up being evil and helps Sauron construct his temple to Morgoth because she's becoming an engineer. And I thought that that was a really interesting theory. But I guess we'll see. And it would also make sense as to why, if she turns evil, you would assume she's in the destruction and she doesn't come to Middle-earth with her brothers. Oh, also in this scene, we find out that uh, Isildur's brother, Anarion, exists. Which is huge. <laughs> I thought they were going to cut him out of this show. You know, Peter Jackson cut out Anarion too. If you watch, uh, If you watch the... Lord of the Rings movies, Anarion isn't in there. He doesn't exist. Isildur is basically his only son. I mean, not that he says that, but, you know, we don't we don't get a shot of Anarion. So I was happy to see that Anarion exists in this show because I kind of thought that they were just going to replace him with the sister. So Isildur is the oldest. Uh, Anarion is the youngest brother. But I think in the show, Anarion is older than him. That's... That was the implication that I kind of got, but I could be wrong on that. It's just kind of the way that he was brought up that made him seem like the older brother in the show. Uh, So, yeah, we get that whole scene, and now that's done. And then we move on to Galadriel approaches the cell that Halbrand is in, in Numenor. And she tells him that she found something in the Hall of Lore. And it is this, she found a symbol that is the symbol of a king who supposedly united the Southlands and pledged fealty to Morgoth, I guess. And this same symbol is on a pendant around the neck of Halbrand. So we find out that apparently, you know, if you believe this story, that Halbrand is some descendant of a house long bereft of lordship that he really is the true king of the people of the Southlands, which is interesting. There's a lot of potential there, I guess. Uh, but what I really want to focus on in, in this scene is, is less that reveal and more what Galadriel says to him. Because I'm watching this and I really want to know, do these writers have the ability to portray what Tolkien believed about the world and his philosophies in this show? Now, what I've always said is that if Amazon succeeds at this, it'll be despite themselves. You know, it'll almost be like them accidentally falling into it. However, the first three episodes, I've heard a lot of things that I really like philosophically. Gladriel says in this moment, now I'll read the quote, Ours was no chance meeting. Not fate, nor destiny, nor any other words men use to speak of forces they lack the conviction to name. Ours was the work of something greater. Now, my mouth dropped when I heard that. Because we know that they are making a reference to providence in this world, right? They are talking about the forces that are governing this world that are teleological. I don't believe that we'll ever get a reference to Iluvatar in this show the god of Tolkien's universe. I think that that's, one, I don't believe that they have the fortitude to do so. But two, I think that it's just, it's a really complicated subject that requires a lot of explanation. Um, 
I really hope that I'm, I'm wrong on that because Iluvatar literally himself with his power destroys Numenor. The Valar don't destroy Numenor. Iluvatar does. So that's what I want to see in the show. I doubt that we'll get it. But just the fact that like, you know, that is that statement that Galadriel makes is, is a very brazen. It wasn't subtle. It was it was strong. It was a strong stance on on what's happening in this show. And I really appreciate that. And honestly, like, I think the quote by itself is just powerful. I was surprised. You know, I don't know who, I don't know all the writers on this show, but I certainly didn't think that they were, they had the ability to come up with quotes like that. I want to read it again. Ours was no chance meeting, not fate, nor destiny, nor any other words men use to speak of forces they lack the conviction to name. It's great because there's so many people who are, you know, they talk about, they talk about spirituality, they talk about fate, they talk about destiny and these these vague, they're like vague references to, to things that are beyond themselves. Now I'm talking real world here. That is, in the real world, that's God. God controls everything. So just hearing that, like I, I really appreciated that quote. And I, you know, I did see some people pointing out on Twitter, it's like, yeah, but she doesn't name it though. And it's like, all right, <laughs> it's... I think that the meaning of the quote was very clear and forthright. And it was something that I loved. I, I, I didn't, they've kind of doubled down on this idea of the world being controlled by powers outside of all these individuals. And that's very Tolkienian. So I, I liked that scene a lot. After that takes place, we get a shot of Numenor at nighttime, which looked really cool. You know, again, I love, love, love the aerial shots of Numenor. And it's Tar Muriel kind of ascending this tower in the palace. I guess, oh, you know what? Just remembered, I realized that I forgot to mention in the Hall of Lore, we find out that Tar Muriel's father is still alive. They don't name him in the show, but his name is Tar Palantir. I don't know if they're going to give him that name in the show. I Yeah, well, they probably will. I would assume that... I, I, I believe in the appendices it names Tar Palantir. So they'll probably include that. But yeah, we find out he's alive. We find out that he has been dethroned. Elendil tells Galadriel that he's been forced from the throne because he wants to be connected to the Valar. He wants to be connected to the elves. And the people weren't having any of that. So, forgot to go over that before, but yes, that is the situation, and he has essentially been an exile within his own country, spending all of his time in this tower, which, it it doesn't happen in the books that way, however, I do appreciate the reference of him being exiled in this tower, because he does spend the large share of the end of his reign, uh, kind of the end half of his reign, he, he spends all his time in a tower, because he's basically detached from the people of Numenor as far as like them being on the same page. So I thought that that was interesting. And Tar Palantir, he gives this uh, prediction. He says that the the tree of Nimloth, which is that tree that we got in the beginning of the episode, he says that this tree is is tied with the line of kings. And if that tree dies, then the line of kings will end. So that's what happens in the books. And Tar Muriel goes up there and she says to her father, I think I'm paraphrasing it a little bit, but she says something like, the elf is here, that the time we feared has come. So I think that we're getting a reference to Tar Palantir having the, this, the skill of foresight, you know, that he has, in the show at least, he's predicted the arrival of an elf. 
and that elf is Galadriel, and that's going to precede this horrible thing that's going to happen that they don't reveal. But you're assuming it's going to be the downfall of Numenor. So also in this moment, we find that the implication, at least, of this scene is that Tarmiriel is actually of like mind with her father and not with the people who want to reject um, elvish culture. So, yeah, we kind of get that reveal. I thought that was great. I'd love to, I mean, it's not, it certainly doesn't coincide with the lore, but, you know, I'd like to see Tar Palantir and, and what he's like. That'll be kind of an interesting angle for the show. It's it's not something that's such a drastic change that I would be upset about. I'd actually like to see his character and what he might be like and the things that he might talk about. So I'm excited to see that. And yeah, that wraps up uh, the Galadriel storyline. I'm going to move over now to the Harfoots. I'm just going to gloss over this one real quick because... It was pretty boring, honestly. It was my least favorite part of this episode. Nori steals this book, or or a page out of a book of Sadak, the, the guy who's, I wouldn't say he's the chief, but he's one of the elders of the tribe. Um, she goes into his little, little portable home, and she swipes a page out of his book, and it's got the constellation on it that the stranger's character makes out of the fireflies. Uh, in the previous episodes and she steals that for him and then they're having this um, they're having this little festival thing to honor all of their past dead and it's kind of creepy because you find out that they're a little bit brutal when they go on these when they move their people around because they're very nomadic they apparently just kind of leave the week behind uh, or at least that was the implication which you know that was a little harsh but I guess the point is that we're supposed to see these people grow and change yeah that was a little weird but so the stranger is examining this page that Nori gives to him and he accidentally lights a bunch of stuff on fire and then you see that he is revealed to the whole group of people. Nori gets in trouble for helping him out and then because of that her and her family now have to be at the back of the caravan and then when and that's the punishment and then when they all go off the stranger decides to help them carry their caravan so i really think that like every bit of scene for the harfoots was really during that episode was really meant to just kind of drive the plot forward a little bit and have the rest of the harfoots figure out that nori has been housing this stranger so that's the result of that not not much happens other than the big reveal that nori has made friends with this random guy who we still don't know who he is and now moving to, uh, again, like I said, I was just going to gloss over that one because not much happened. Arondir. Okay, so I'm going back now. Beginning of the episode. Arondir is being dragged through this this hole. And there's a bunch of people behind jail bars. Um, and he's tossed out into like a work pit where oh, he's, he's chained up to as well. He's chained up to a bunch of other workers. And we see that these people are slaves of orcs. And, and I actually like this scene because it's what I envision when I read the Silmarillion and I read about the thralls of Morgoth and how he had a bunch of different elves performing work for him, kind of like beneath Thangorodrum. Kind of how I pictured that and the orcs being, you know, drivers of these workers. Because if you watch the Peter Jackson movies, most of the interactions that we get with orcs are violent until you get to uh, Sam and Frodo being in Mordor. You know, most of everything is just like a fight scene. So it's interesting to see like orcs interacting with each other and orcs interacting with um, their prisoners. And Arondir gets thrown out there. The orcs command them to cut down this tree. 
and they have this exchange where the elves don't want to do it, and Irondir's uh, oh, and all of Irondir's squad of elves who are essentially the policemen of these Southlands, which definitely isn't in the lore, but whatever. The him and his squad of elf cops are chained up there, and they're trying to argue with the orcs as to like going going around the tree would be better. It would be faster, it'd be more efficient, we don't have to chop down this tree. And one of the orcs, who is clearly the the one in command, he's got what looks like a refashioned, you know, Noldor helmet on his head, which I, I thought was interesting. It's like maybe he like scavenged that or something. But he kind of strolls up to them and he's like, hey, you know, you've you've got some guts. Here, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you some water. So he goes and gives them all water, and then the one friend who Arondir was discussing the girl that he liked with, uh, gets his throat cut while he's drinking the water. And, you know, I thought it was interesting because, you know, we, we get that, like, we get the death of an elf on screen. I think when we think of the elves, it's it's easy to picture them because of the way they've been depicted prior as superhuman and not so easily cut down in that manner. But he was, you know, it was just like a quick slash to the neck and the guy was done. Which I, th- I thought was good, because it kind of raises the stakes of the situation a little bit there. You know, elves are not invincible. Uh, but anyway, they Irondir volunteers to cut down the tree, and then he jumps up on the root, and he goes to hit it, and he apologizes. You know, he says something like, forgive me, I think, in like Quenya or something. Which, you know, that's Tolkien love trees. So I appreciate that little hat tip. A lot of people thought that that was kind of extra. I didn't think it was extra, Um I, I saw the spirit of where that was coming from. However, at the same time, it's like, why would you pick that moment to be upset about felling a tree? You know, we have to assume that elves are making things out of wood. So, you know, it seems like the stakes are pretty high there for you to take a stand on, on a tree. But so they, they devised this plan to wait until the sun is at its highest and most bright to spring onto the orcs and try to get one person up and out of there to escape and bring in some reinforcements. And when the sun is up there, they execute it. And I I thought it was cool because we kind of get this, we get a taste of those orcs that are not wanting to be in the sunlight. And we don't get that in the Peter Jackson movies. We don't get the visual depiction of that because most of the orcs that we see running around in the sunlight in the Peter Jackson movies are the Urukai. And we know that they are sun resistant. So appreciated that little bit. You know, I like the, the fact that, the, oh, and by the way, I love the way the orcs look. Incredible. Weta Workshop did a great job. I mean, no complaints there. And I like the, you know, I like the rag look. I like the fact that they're kind of slowly trying to, I like the idea of them having to like dig a trench, you know, because they don't want to be moving out in the sunlight. So they execute this plan and it goes wrong. They release, the orcs release a warg. Uh, you know, with with my compliments on the orcs comes a little criticism. I think the warg looked so stupid. Um, it wasn't the worst thing I've ever seen, but it just kind of looked like a looked like a rabid chihuahua. Like it just wasn't it wasn't what I think of when I think of like a fierce kind of warg. You know, I thought Peter Jackson did a much better job, but whatever. It's give and take. Not everything can look great. So yeah, they're kind of fighting this warg, and then Arondir ends up killing it, and then he gets his commander up over this trench. And he goes to run, and then Arondir goes to climb out, and we see that his commander has been hit Barmir style with two arrows, and he goes down, and he dies. 
So all of his little squad ends up getting wiped out in this attempt to escape. And they go up and they pull Irondir. They rip him back down into this trench. And they're about to cut his throat. And all of a sudden, the orcs go, take him to Adar. And then the orcs start chanting, Adar, Adar, Adar. And you see this figure kind of walking out. They go, see what's up. And then we get a silhouette of what looks like an elf with black hair. And we know it's, I forget the actor's name. I think it's Joseph Maul, guy from Game of Thrones. Uh, He's playing what appears to be an elf with the name Adar, which means uh, father in Quenya. So there's this elf there working with him. I don't know who he is. We don't have any context for anybody named Adar, you know, working with Sauron. Uh, My prediction is that, you know, some people think this is Sauron. I don't think so. I think it's too quick on the reveal. This guy is definitely not going to be Sauron. I think that he's like an underling of Sauron uh, or some elf working with him, which we have an example of that happening prior in the Silmarillion. Uh, Maeglin, specifically, he he assists in the downfall of Gondolin because he switched sides and serves Morgoth. Uh, other elves, they've been captured as thralls and they get turned by Morgoth. So we have examples of that happening in the Silmarillion, but nobody doing it in the Second Age. So I don't know. We'll see where it goes. I... I had heard in the rumors, and I talk about this, I've talked about this before, I've, I've heard in the rumors that, you know, it could end up being a relative of Galadriel. Some have even said that maybe it's Galadriel's brother, which I would have a huge problem with that that can happen. I don't think that they're going to do that because that's that's pretty brazen. Just like I don't think that the stranger is going to be Gandalf. Like, it's it's just too much, you know? But we'll see. So, yeah, that about wraps up the episode. Um... You know, my thoughts as far as like the rating and everything goes. Uh, This has been my favorite episode so far. You know, the first two episodes had a really slow pace. There was stuff that was off with the lore. I mean, there's stuff off with the lore in the third episode too. But the third episode really made me feel like, okay, I think I'm dealing with a competent show here. I still want to see the philosophical direction of this show. I still want to see what they do with the story. Because, you know, I've said before... If something is too crazy, I'll I'll stop watching the show. I have yet to see something that nauseates me to the point that I don't want to watch it anymore. Uh, but I think that at this point, I can say like, okay, this this they could do some exciting things. They could have a really good show on their hands. After watching episode three, I really feel like it's their show to make bad. It, it's their competition to lose. They could do some really cool stuff. So uh, we'll see. Uh, but yeah, that about wraps up my thoughts on The Rings of Power, Episode 3. This one was called Adar, which was funny because we don't really get to meet this character. But what did, what did you guys think? Let me know. Hit me up on Twitter. Tell me your thoughts. As always, thanks for listening.